welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 144, recorded on April 23rd of 2021. The Photo Geekery Show, where uh, there's a number of stories that come across my desk. I'm Don Kamarechka, the host of the show, uh, every week that are geeky in the photo industry that uh, uh, might sort of uh, tickle our imagination. It could be something as simple as a patent. It could be the work of other photographers, an ethical dilemma, new technology that we can get our hands on, and everything in between. And with me on this episode uh, is a good friend of mine, an old friend, and uh, one of my favorite podcasters from what, what I consider the pioneering days in uh, in podcasts. This is Frederick Van Johnson in the co-pilot seat today. Frederick, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Don. Thanks for having me on the show. This is It's always fun to talk and geek out with you on all things tech and photography. So thanks. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered that these conversations uh, never, uh, never get old. I mean, th- this show has been on for a number of years now, and it's not quite weekly. I mean, I, I, you know, I admit that I miss a week or two here or there, especially during the pandemic, where time is a little bit frayed. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not sitting here idly by. I mean, I've got lots of stuff on the go. My book is hitting the press. It might even be on the press right now. I just know that I get uh, photos of the production this coming week because I've uh, I've told the uh, the press crew to take photos at the various stages of uh, of printing and binding and and such so that I could share that with people. Um, but you haven't been sitting on your hands either, Frederick. I know that you've been up to some really great things with uh, this week in photo and the Twip Pro community, right? Yes, I have, man. I, you know, as you said, we've known each other for quite a while and, and the, the, the project or the bonsai tree that is this week in photo is constantly in a, in a, in a state of evolution and refinement. And, you know, and a lot of it's because the, the market changes, I change, my interests change, I get bored easily. So I have to change things. You know? So <laughs> the next, not that this, this latest change is boredom driven, but the next big thing that that I'm rolling out is our community, right? We've been we've been sort of in a private beta, not publicized, but not not publicized intentionally. So the community has been growing, and now it's ready for prime time, and I'm ready to push it out. It's really interesting. It's a it's a kind of a Facebook group ish type modality, but not on Facebook. Highly intentionally not on Facebook. So it's a it's kind of that feel, but there's photography in there, there's challenges in there, there's critiques in there, and then there's um, uh, several courses, a course library that's just getting started. I think there's about nine courses in there now, but the courses are growing as well. And it's the, the not to spend too much time on it, but the, the, the main reason I built the community early on was to have a landing place for dialogues to continue outside of the podcast and not have to have them under Facebook's rule or social media just to have a place where, hey, this is a this is our airport lounge where we can all come and hang out and have a, you know, a glass of whiskey and talk about photography. And that's what I built. So, yeah, I'm excited for it. That's fun. And uh, we've just started doing, and I say we because I'm, I'm helping in, in some way, uh, starting out doing a uh, this uh, idea of challenges on a monthly basis or however long they're going to be. Um, 
And we're starting out with a macro photography challenge uh, where basically, you know, there's uh, we just kind of kicked it off with a a presentation yesterday as we're recording this, uh, detailing some fun ideas that people can explore uh, with the gear you already own or a minimal um, accumulation of bits and pieces to try different things and uh, with a couple of different goals, uh, you know, challenge goals uh, to to get through anything from getting close to creating something. And, uh, you know, in this case, it's me that's going to be there, uh, just kind of guiding people through it and uh, commenting and critiquing images and answering questions and helping people find better solutions or just different ways to do things, which is a spark for creativity as well. Um, And uh, so I'm happy to be a part of that uh, for whatever it is, because it's the first one. It's just a total experiment right now. It could completely fail. I, I don't think yeah. it will, but it I do will. think that it will evolve from this point and in future ones will be learning off of where we are at this at this stage of the game. But but um, we're starting we're starting strong and the platform that we're running on is beautiful and very robust. And the people that are in there that are participating in this challenge are very inspired and talented photographers and they have a talented instructor and they love you, Don. So you know, this is thank you for doing that challenge. And the one thing to to note is it's interesting the way the way that I've built this community is the challenges are part of the membership. So as being a member, you have access to participate in these challenges. But after this challenge, the next ones will actually be paid challenges. So in order to participate in a the challenge, there'll be a small fee to to participate in the challenge, you know, forever how long or however long the, the challenge goes. But if you're a member, no fees at all. So and the, the membership price for the community, we're launching at $24 a month for the launch special. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And so a little plug to you there, Frederick. And uh, I mean, I I know you're doing some good things in the the photography community space. So I wanted to put a spotlight on that for a minute before we get to the stories. Uh, But also that that just reminded me, um, I was uh, speaking with our mutual friend, Doug Kay recently, um, who as a, uh, uh, I, I guess, a boredom driven project during the pandemic taught himself, and I'm so envious of this, uh, taught himself platinum palladium printing. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, he actually sent me one. Uh, where is it here? Oh, I, I have to, sh- and nobody else can see this, but um, uh, I, I actually, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I will take a photo of the photo that Doug uh, had, had printed for me because I have this beautiful platinum palladium print. Uh, that I will have framed. I sent him an image of one of my snowflakes uh, and he does a digital conversion uh, into this beautiful uh, antiquated and archaic uh, analog medium. And uh, I just, I, you know what? It's it's not as clear as an inkjet print. It's it's not as, uh, it's, it's monochromatic only, uh, but it will last a lifetime. And it's, it just, it feels more tangible than anything else. So um, I, 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 I see his ingenuity uh, of just saying, you know what, I've got time on my hands. Let's learn something completely new. And I, I wish I had that kind of energy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's really cool to be a lifelong learner like that, like that, which, which I aspire to be, but to, that's a lot of effort to put in, 
you know, on something like that. It is. I, I actually want to have him on an episode of Inside the Lens, uh, yeah. which is the, the deep dive podcast, which I only still have like single digit episodes of. It's not something that comes up very often, but I want to do more. And a topic like that, I think, is is timeless. So uh, look for that in the future. Uh, Doug said he's willing to do it. But uh, anyhow, let's uh, let's get into the stories of yeah. the day of the week. Let's do it. Um, uh, story number one, uh, reported on, uh, well, I found it a lot of places, but this one was Petapixel in the show notes. Coronavirus hug in Brazil wins World Press Photo of the Year. Um, and I'll just read the opening uh, paragraph here uh, to give context to that image. And I encourage everybody to go and check out the show notes at photogeekweekly.com and pull up these images and take a look at them all for yourself. Uh, formulate your own opinions on them. But um, the opening paragraph here, uh, written by uh, Jaron Schneider. Uh, the World uh, Press Photo of the Year is designed to honor a photographer whose visual creativity and skills combine to create a picture that captures or represents an event or issue of great journalistic importance in a given year. This year, there is likely no larger story than the COVID-19 pandemic, and a photo by Mads Nissen, a photographer from Denmark titled The First Embrace Took Top Honors. Um, his photo... Uh, was also the winner in the general news category. And I, I just want to preface this that, yeah, 2020 has been a really memorable year for all of us. It's also been a year that a lot of people have wanted to just forget uh, or will be blurry uh, for others just because time has a sense of fluidity that I don't think it's ever really had before. But when, when you hear uh, all the stories in the news, they all felt a little bit closer to home, even if they were halfway around the world. And when I'd seen previous images uh, in previous competitions, they, they all had a sense of power, but also a sense of remoteness. But somehow all of these just made me feel closer to every single one of them because I've been hearing stories around the globe and not just in my own backyard. And I've been caring about them more. Um, what do you think about this competition in general, uh, the winners of this contest? And does anything stand out for you, Frederick? I love these contests. And I, this, this photo in particular, I had, to, I had to stare at it for a while, which I guess, you know, is why it won. But when you look at it, and like you said, Don, I would encourage folks that are listening to this to go, go look at it. Um, this, this photo, when I looked at it, I initially saw a dove, like a peace dove outlined. Oh, by yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, like it outlined by the it, completely unintentional. And then it just it draws you in. And I think a lot of the things that are missing from a lot of photographs today are is just the sense of story and storytelling, even street photography, you know, this and the emotion that comes from story. And this shot sums it up, right? It's got it's got, like I said, the 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 sort of dove looking outline there it's got it's got the multiracial thing going on it's got the mask in there it's got you know what looks to be an older lady you know being hugged by a a, a younger lady in there and then it's outlined in plastic which symbolizes the the barrier that we've all felt between ourselves and the rest of humanity for the last 18 months or so so it's it's a really really powerful image and like you said it's it's uncomfortable it's it's beautiful to look at as a photographer it's uncomfortable to look at especially as we get hopefully further and further away from the that horror that that is slash was the pandemic this brings it back home and this is it's kind of like walking around outside and seeing a mask on the ground a discarded mask it's like oh wow yeah that's that's where we are right now you know that's yeah. our reality so i yeah i really love it 
um, contests. Well, and, and I just want to uh, reiterate yep. for those that might not uh, be able to go and check it out right away that the dove type look that you're referring to is basically uh, the, the nurse in this image. Uh, the nurse is uh, uh, Adriana Silva uh, da Costa Souza. Um, and she is hugging uh, Rosa Luisa Lunardi. Their, their names are in the, the release here. So uh, an 85-year-old woman. But her arms are in plastic sleeves. And those sleeves are attached to an entire, you know, at least from the frame, top to bottom, frame of plastic. And it'll mm -hmm. probably be completely enveloping uh, her to make sure that that nurse, who's probably in touch with a lot of different people, uh, doesn't spread COVID-19 to, uh, to this elderly woman. And, uh, so it's, it's like, you know, when you would stick your gloves into the, well, I've never done this, but you know, you see it in the movies where, you know, you've got these little gloves that go into this box so that you can control stuff and manipulate a specimen without being exposed to it. Well, it's like that for hugging people. Yeah. And, and so the fact that that has to exist right now alone is a powerful image. Um, and, uh, sorry, I wanted you to continue. Yeah, no, no, no. That was that was it. Yeah, I was just gonna say from a from a contest standpoint, the these contests and the the photos of the year. I always, I'm a little bit dubious of contests because there are so many amazing images that we will never lay eyes on that are out there. So these, you know, a, a, I take a ton of images. Not all of them are great, but I share very little of my work online because I don't shoot for other people. I shoot for myself. So these these photos of the year contests and all that they're great i think for up leveling work but they're very you have to look at them as a very small it's like the visible light spectrum right there's a lot of a, <laughs> yep. to put it in don komaretska terms right there's a <laughs> there's a lot of radiation in that in the spectrum there but very little of it is in the visible light spectrum these shots that filter up into these contests i see is kind of at that's the tip of the iceberg and there's a mountain of other good work out there to see there is and and i think that the the personal stories is where a lot of these uh hit home with and and it could be topical issues right now uh it, it could be you know um there's uh, a disagreement about the removal of the emancipation memorial uh, memorial in lincoln park washington dc and you know you have people that their expressions and their ideals are on their face right and that's a difficult thing to capture uh in in, in a photograph there's one of a, a of a giraffe that is trapped uh, and uh, and is being, uh, I guess, relocated from a flooded area to a, a, a more safe area for the giraffe to be. And that's in the nature category. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a hard thing. I don't usually think of nature and photojournalism uh, going together. And so that was that was an interesting one. And plus, you mentioned the masks. Yeah. One of my favorites in this list was, you know, uh, a seal that was swimming towards a discarded face mask underwater uh, yes. and, you know, curiously looking at it. But I've seen some, you know, you know, ducks and turtles all entangled in discarded masks as well as people find them near shorelines. And, um, you know, I just a uh, PSA to people, if you are going to throw a mask away, which you shouldn't do, you know, you should dispose of it properly. But even if you do that, uh, you never know where it's going to end up. Uh, just cut the straps. Just like you cut the rings on a six pack uh, of plastic, just just cut the straps. Uh, yeah. Just good. You never know what's going to happen in the future. So there, there's my PSA yeah. um, from that. But 
that kind of leads us into our second story, uh, which is also another contest. And, and this is a contest in an entirely different fashion. And it's one that I may or may not agree with there. There's different reasons why I'd be on either side of the line for it. Uh, reported by DP review, uh, contest from Hasselblad, uh, in their, what they call their 2021 masters composition, uh, competition offers 12 medium format cameras as prizes. And, uh, and so medium format manufacturer Hasselblad, which is now owned by, by DJI. So, uh, it's kind of weird to, you know, think that, uh, Hasselblad, the, the, the wonderful, uh, you know, Swedish camera manufacturer where you would want to put one of their cameras up on a pedestal of engineering design, um, is now owned by a Chinese drone manufacturer. Uh, I'm not saying that they won't do a good job of it, but there is an, an unusual juxtaposition, uh, between those, those brands. It's a brand Um, misalignment, but I, I, yeah, I kind of feel like there's something there. So there's a bunch of categories, uh, art, aerial architecture, beauty and fashion, uh, landscape and nature portrait product project slash slash 21. Uh, I'm not sure what that one is. I'd have to dig into it a little bit more deeply. Uh, street and urban wedding, wildlife, and whatever heritage is. So it's all across the board. Any photographer of most flavors would probably be able to submit something to this competition. But here's something that bothers me. Um, if, if I am a photographer who has the skill and the equipment to submit a photo that can win the competition, why should my prize be a camera? If I've already proven by winning the competition, I have what it takes and I don't necessarily need what you're offering if that's what the prize is, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, well, there there's a number of, that's why I said, you know, on the last one, I'm, I'm a little bit dubious of contests in general online like this. Um, because I, what the first thing that I do when I see a contest like this, like I would imagine many of my my peers do, is look at the the licensing that they put in. Oh the yes, rules, oh I'm so right? glad you mentioned that. <laughs> what have you seen in draconian licensing rules? Oh my God! Well, it's just that word. It, the it's it's the phrase of the. Let me read it. Can I read it out loud? So. Section yep. eight, gr- grant of rights by entering into the contest and submitting an entry, each entrant hereby grants to Hasselblad and its affiliates uh, and its affiliates and Hasselblad and the affiliate hereby accepts a non-exclusive, irrevocable, royalty-free, worldwide, perpetual, sub-licensable and transferable license to use and exploit the intellectual property rights subsisting in his, her respective entries. Then it goes on for more detail after that. Restart. (laughs) Say the first few words of that section eight, please. Uh, by entering into the contest and submitting. Uh, there it is. By entering into the contest. Not yeah. by winning the contest. Not by being shortlisted in the contest. Simply by entering into the contest. Yep. Right? right. Yep. Uh, so that means that Hasselblad, its affiliates, you have no idea who they are. We know at least they're owned by DJI. And by proxy, yeah. it could be any of DJI's affiliates. Uh, yeah. Of which there are an unknown quantity of. Right. Uh, and you have just granted every single one of them the rights to use and abuse your images with no compensation to you whatsoever right. for any reason. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that there are statements in there that state that if you uploaded an image that 
you know, you didn't get a model release for, well, that's on you if they choose to put it on a billboard advertising their products, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because there's a, usually a, an indemnif- uh, indemnification clause or something that's like right. that. Uh, that's right. And so you, you give away a lot and you risk a lot because you have no control over that image anymore. Um, I cannot recall if this one said that the images had to be used uh, in uh, in context of the competition. Some of these do and some of them don't. And that that's to me sometimes a little bit more favorable. And I've entered into some like uh, science photography of the year competitions because they state that the usage is limited just to the competition. Uh, and that means that like if they wanted to put together a book of images for the competition, well, that's that's related. If they wanted to put out a press release uh, to a bunch of media outlets for them to run the story, well, that's related. Uh, and, and that, I think, is, is a caveat. But it basically, these are the only rules and regulations, the end user license agreement of photo competitions, uh, as it were, that I actually read. Uh, yeah. I, I, how many times, Frederick, in your life have you ever read verbatim uh, a EULA? Only when I had to write one (laughs) (laughs) or write a paragraph for one for some software at a big tech company I was working at. Uh, But no, I don't read it. And they know you're not going to read it. You sign up for Facebook. There's a EULA, you know, in user license agreement. And you're you're wanting to get to the sugar. Right. And they put the barrier in between you and the sugar, hoping you're just going to click accept and go in. And when you do, all rights are gone and you're, you know, you're now a product. But if you want to be, if you want the benefit of that free tool, then you're going to pay for it with Oh, even if you pay for the tool, anytime you buy a piece of software uh, or have a subscription to software, there's an end user license agreement there as well. And so um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, devils in those details. Uh, I do remember one company uh, at one point when they were running like a a travel photography uh, competition. And I wish I could remember the name of this company, but hidden in the EULA uh, was some language that say, if you're reading this, just send us an email uh, to whatever their email address is uh, with this particular keyword or with some identification that you're actually reading it, you're going to get a free vacation. Um, And it, it took like, if I recall correctly, a couple of months before uh, they actually got somebody to bite and and send in an email because wow. it was it was a test to say nobody reads this no nobody ever reads these things so thank you for bringing up though those terms and conditions rules and regulations end user license whatever you want to call the lengthy legalese um, know what you're giving away uh, especially right. too and and I I've been kind of wary about software um, that. Uh, uploads your images to whatever cloud service that they have uh, to do whatever processing on it and then send it back to you uh, without doing the processing locally because there might be something hiding in the the license agreement or you know if you upload your images we can do all sorts of nefarious things with it not saying that they would um, but you know, a, a company could easily, uh, you know, skewer themselves in, in the court of public opinion, even though they could win in the court of law, right? And so yeah. the court of yeah. public opinion is valuable there as well. If I uploaded an image to Facebook, and then all of a sudden it showed up on billboards in New York City, uh, advertising Facebook services, yeah, Facebook would have a PR nightmare on their hands, even if they, they had the ability to do it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, because Facebook has, I would imagine, a, an entire building full of 
highly paid lawyers that could bury you if they felt like it, right? So they could, this they is could, true. I this easily will wield the legal system against any and all threats. So things would never see the light of day. So they they don't. I don't think it's a it's a matter of that. I think these these eulas are are wholly CYA, and they're written by groups of lawyers that want to make sure that any and all potential plugs are plugged by you entering this contest. And I think I think photographers that enter these contests have to look at. It. I know from the from the surface, it looks like. Hey, uh, all I got to do is send in this great image, and it could result in me having a medium format Hasselblad in my in my arsenal of things to shoot with. When the reality is, you're probably not going to win, right? Chances are saying you're not going to win, but you're building a library of amazing images for this this, this entity on, under the auspices of you might win something, which you're probably not going to win. So you just have to go into it. Who was it? John Ruskin said there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? So yeah. you're going to pay for it anyway. You're going to pay for that camera anyway, either with licensing of your Im- or you're going to pay for that entry, you know, licensing of your images. Or if you win, you've just paid, you you know, the license for that image that won paid for that camera. So you're going to pay. Just read, read the, read the fine print every time. Yeah. And, and I've, I've seen some of that fine print even say things like, uh, uh, oh, well, the image can't have been submitted to any other image competitions, which I found odd until mm-hmm. I realized that some image competitions out there have even more restrictive rules in that they own the rights to all submissions. So you, you not only just give a license, but you give up all of the rights to Ownership. it. Um, yep. And so if you yeah. if you did that for another competition, you legally don't have the rights to be in possession of your image anymore uh, or submit it to another competition or make a print of it for that matter. So be be careful. Uh, photographers, your work is valuable. And, uh, you know, uh, Frederick, uh, you say you shoot mostly for yourself. Um, I shoot for myself and for my business. Like I, I spend a lot of time just tinkering and exploring and playing with bits and pieces of gear not because it's going to end up with a great image, but because I just like puzzles. I like solving mm-hmm. them and I can use the camera to just explore the world differently. And to me, that's enjoyable. Those images usually never see the light of day unless I need to put some behind the scenes or some progression images into a presentation, um, which is fun. But uh, at, at the end of that journey, I usually end up with something awesome. Uh, and that's something awesome. And there's a lot of these journeys that haven't finished yet. Cause I'm still making garbage, uh, cause there's still problems that need to be solved in that particular vein uh, of work. Uh, but I do consider it all valuable. It's all part of a process and every image that any photographer takes, regardless of how valuable they think it is, is probably valuable to somebody. Um, and, uh, value your work more, everybody, I suppose. And that's, that's the ramble, the end of that ramble, the point that I was trying to make. <laughs> Lifelong learner. There you go. Exactly. There you go. There you go. Um, uh, now this, this next story, um, it, it's a weird one. Um, I think that this one is like a solution trying to find a problem, uh, from Petapixel, uh, the Raven trigger can control multiple brand strobe at the same time. And so uh, Fusion uh, TLC has announced its flagship hot shoe mounted strobe trigger called Raven, which boasts simultaneous compatibility with multiple brands such as Profoto, Godox, Pocket Wizard, and more. And it also looks weird. It looks like a, you know, a, a combat flight stick from, from an totally aircraft does. or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's, um, it's interesting because I, 
this type of product hasn't existed before. And the reason why is because I don't think anybody's been asking to, hey, can I mix uh, a whole suite of pro photo gear with a whole suite of pocket wizard gear uh, that normally can't talk together? No? Okay, well, I'll just choose one and I'm still happy. I have no compromises being made in the process of doing so. Is there any advantage that you can see of being able to mix and match like this? This you like you hit it right on the head. You hit the nail right on the head. This is this is a a cure in search of a disease, right? So it is, or a or a vaccine in search of a virus, right? So <laughs> there you go. This, this is to be topical. Uh, but I, I, the use case when I saw this article, first of all, it looks interesting. It looks like you said, it looks like a, a it control looks stick. Powerful. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's got an interesting industrial design to it, and. I would love it if my Godox controllers look like this, but I have Godox controllers for my lights. So do why would I need this? So the, the only use case that I could see or one of the use cases that I could see would be as a bridge device. So if I, if I have a bunch of Godox lights now and a bunch of controllers and then I decide, you know what, I'm going to move over to Profoto or whatever, right? Now I have mixed lights and I have to figure out a solution to control and mix and match these lights. Then I need something that can speak multiple languages to my, to my, or, or multiple signals to multiple lighting systems. I could see using it for that. But how many of those people are out there in the world that have mixed lighting systems? I just, I just keep buying Godox stuff and it all works together, right? right. I, I don't I know mean, that I, I need any more complexity. The, the, the possible uh, idea, and I've got two uh, fringe cases here. One is one of the companies that it supports goes out of business. So you can no longer get there their equipment and, and you have to buy new equipment from another brand, uh, but you don't want to divest from everything that you've had. Now, obviously that hasn't happened with any of these companies. They still seem to be doing quite well. Yeah. Um, the other scenario would be you're just buying into one platform and you're not sure if it's going to work out perfectly. So you want to at least leave some of your equipment open for flexibility. So you could buy this controller and a pro photo light, knowing that the controller will control the pro photo light just fine. But if pro photo isn't really the direction where you want to go, or there's some, uh, you know, enticing product from another company that Profoto doesn't have that you can add that to your kit, knowing that you can mix the two of them from the ground up. Um, but that doesn't seem like it's a problem any, anybody's had before. And in fact, I, I know how hard it is to make a camera kind of fit like a glove in the sense that it's almost like muscle memory. Everything just works. I almost forget that it's in my hand. Uh, and I know where every button menu is uh, uh, to, to find the how to format my card in like three seconds or what have you, because I just know exactly where all of those functions are and I can shortcut everything. And you, you, you get a feel for it. And, and I think people that spend a lot of time with lighting equipment really get a feel for how all the buttons are laid out and how to quickly navigate because you're in a shoot, time is money. Um, and multiple systems, and I've used some of these different systems, especially when people bring uh, wireless flash triggers to some of the workshops. Uh, if I remember in the distant past when I used to do them in person, um, when, uh, when people would bring a pocket wizard's trigger to fire their flash, and they didn't, or maybe they knew how it worked, but just something wasn't working properly that day. I would give it five minutes to try and figure out on my own uh, intuitions, but I'd often give up and loan them a simple dumb trigger that is just on off and chooses a channel and fires any flash. You know, just manually only, obviously, but um, 
because it worked. And so sometimes that simplicity is better, or at least an intuition that you know is better. Having multiple flash systems is like speaking multiple languages. That's uh, exactly what and it is. If yeah. you don't have to, if something could get lost in translation or slow things down, why would that be an advantage? Yeah, it's. it's I think this this opens up a bunch of. It opens up Pandora's box, you know, by trying to be a Rosetta Stone for for multiple flash brands. I think what happens is because as these as these these modern flash brands evolve, they like all of my strobes have USB ports on them for firmware updates, you know, as do yep. the controllers. So these manufacturers are updating their hardware and oh, the firmware. Yeah. These over guys time. would have to be doing it for every single one for simultaneously. Everyone. You see the <laughs> matrix? You see the grid that they'll have to keep up with if you buy this? And every time you pull this thing out of your bag, chances are something's going to need an update, right? Do you really? <laughs> Do you really want to go down that path? I think it, the the Occam's Razor path of least resistance is get the get the controller that works with your stuff, right, and yeah. go to town with it. If we start seeing, I think this might come into play if we start seeing the writing on the wall that oh god, Godox is going away or Profoto is going bankrupt, and I, what are we going to do then? These kinds of solutions might make sense to look at as a contingency plan, but adding more complexity to to something that's not broken and and then just because it looks sexy and pretty you know i don't i don't know that we need that and you know the design of this thing is beautiful but this is theater for photographers this isn't for the subject or for the client they probably couldn't care less what this thing looks like they probably don't even know what it does You're just sitting on top of your camera <laughs> do you really need this this beautiful thing sitting on your camera when the thing you already have works just fine that's right. Uh, we should mention the price, $449 US, uh, and that can be purchased directly from Fusion TLC. Honestly, it's, it's the kind of thing that I, if I knew somebody that could use it, I'd want to see a real world example of a photographer that could utilize this in the field or get two photographers together uh, that have different competing systems and and see how it would actually function. But even that's a stretch because, you know, if the, the images on the website, by the way, are just of the product, not actually any of it have been used in a production uh, scenario. And if I bring it up on, on their actual website, uh, I'm not seeing uh, anything that indicates that multiple flash systems were used simultaneously either. There's some pretty images, but it doesn't mm -hmm. state exactly how they were made and why this particular piece of equipment was necessary in that scenario. There is one exception, though, um, that we didn't talk about, and that would have to be in a scenario outside of your control. Say if you're a photographer that's hired to shoot something at the Olympics or a stadium, uh, you know, a big sporting uh, event, that the uh, the flashes are pre-installed in the ceiling or in key locations. Mm -hmm. uh, and they might be different than the ones that you are used to in terms of flash protocols and communications. Um, then you might have the, uh, the jack of all trades in your camera bag that could talk to all of them. However, if you're a photographer hired to go to such an event, whoever's hiring you or the, uh, the venue itself will have the controller needed for that event already. So I just talked myself out of that one. You will. Yeah, for all major camera brands. Yeah, I was thinking, I thought the same thing when I saw the story. I was thinking more from the standpoint of studio rental. 
So if you rent a studio and it comes with lights and all that stuff and like, oh, they got pro photo lights in there. What am I going to do? Because I shoot Lumix and I don't have the controller for those lights and this and that. They're going to have the controllers for you. <laughs> <in the studio. laughs> exactly. They're not going to expect you to show up with a controller. They're going to have controllers for all major brands of cameras, I would assume. You know, yeah. So yeah. You know, if you come with some obscure camera, don't expect that to work. But I think these high-end studios would have that. But again, the whole thing is an edge case. That's a complete edge case. And I don't see a gigantic market for the Raven that uh, that would warrant the the tool up for this. Maybe we're missing something. Maybe, you know, we should get Raven on TWIP or this show or something to talk Maybe. about. Maybe. I mean, I'd like to, to have them plead their case. But I, I will admit that I love uh, edge cases in, in photography. I love those products that just barely have a reason for existing, and yet they do, because somebody's going to find some use that we haven't thought of uh, to utilize it and, uh, and find another creative outlet as a result. You know, like I, I love extreme weird macro lenses and I got a whole bunch of them. Like I've, I've got the, the Liowa 24 millimeter probe lens, which I have successfully used for exactly one image. Um, and I, I can imagine a whole bunch of possibilities. Have I explored them? No, because all the other stuff that I have has worked. Um, I've actually used it more for cinema shooting than I have for stills, uh, but I'm glad it exists. Yeah. Uh, those those weird oddities in the industry, buy them while they last because they might not be around for long, which is also problematic because if it is sort of a flash in the pan type of device, and I'm not saying that it is. I mean, um, they, I wish them all the success that they can find. Um, but if it is not successful and all the other manufacturers update their firmware, but there's nobody to update this device for you anymore, you've got a really cool looking paperweight. That's right. Yeah. And don't think that it, um, your your little pun went by unnoticed. You said flash in the pan. So <laughs> <laughs> glad you caught that. I'm getting better Very at the dad good. jokes. <laughs> Sleeping, you know, slipping those little the little comedy in on the carrier wave. I see what you're doing, Don. Kamar. All right. I'm glad you're picking it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's go on to our final story before we get into picks of the week. Um, this one was interesting to me, and it was a novel use of uh, Google Earth. Uh, and it kind of showed me that we've been gathering satellite image data for a long time, enough to show changes in the planet. Um, so Google Earth's new time-lapse feature shows the effects of climate change. And there was a, a little video that they uh, put a few minutes of footage exploring some of the stuff into. And... Uh, it was like, I'm sure that they're cherry picking certain locations that have, uh, you know, more of an impact than others. But I, I actually think that this is pretty cool. And wouldn't yeah. it be fun if at any point anywhere in, in the world, you could time lapse back to previous satellite footage to say, hey, what did, um, uh, what did this place look like before my house was built? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, what, what, what is mm -hmm. the urban sprawl of my city looking like? Um, yeah. You know, or uh, how has uh, certain rivers and banks changed near uh, near different places or the water levels near, uh, you know, a riverside or an ocean side? And, and how has that, that coastline changed over time? Glaciers as well. So not only could this be used for just civil engineering curiosities, but it can depict climate change quite, quite readily. Did you take a look yeah. at this tool? Did you play with it at all? 
I didn't play with it. I watched the video though. Yeah, and I'm, I have it actually playing in a tab right now. It's it's really interesting and scary, you know. And, and things. Yeah, I'm looking at the UAE here. It's just crazy to see the the sprawl of the UAE. Oh, how, how Dubai they, just came out of nowhere, yeah, right? Right. It's just like, hey, let's put a let's put an amazing high tech, you you know, uh, Wakanda looking city in the middle of the desert, and that's what they did. <laughs> and it looks it looks amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Just looking at data over time is always revealing. And we talk about this. I actually have a course that talks about time traveling, the time traveling photographer. And, you know, you you operate in the world of macro, micro, miniature, right? And revealing details that we would never see without efforts uh, from people like yourself. But there's another world, right, that that is hidden. And that's that compressed or stretched time world. And that's, that's what they're doing here. They're compressing time down, time down so that it's revealing really, really interesting things that we as humans can't perceive. When I go on my little old man walks, I walk around the lake. And the last time I was walking around, Do you I take was a cane this, with you, Frederick. I, well, I got a little walker with tennis balls on it. It works fine. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but I was looking at trees and I was thinking, this is how my brain works. I was thinking, Imagine if you could perceive time as a tree. What would this what would this world look like if the time perception of a tree was similar to how we perceive time in a minute? You know, a tree perceives a year like a minute. What does the tree see? Right? And the evolution of or the the changes of seasons and how things just bloom and go away, bloom and go away, it just it sees all that. So trees live in time lapse for the most part. We don't we live in fast forward. So. But tr- yeah, trees I, also I think do interesting I, I things. It. I mean, not not to get uh, off on uh, too much of a, a, a dendritical topic here, but um, if, uh, if, if and, and I've got some uh, fruit trees in our backyard, and, and I noticed that if I let two branches cross and they kind of rub against each other slightly, uh, one or both of them will die. And not that mm. it caused damage to itself, but it knows that, that could be a point of, of weakness uh, in there. And, and I can look at them and say, okay, well, I don't know why it, it died necessarily, but how does it know? I mean, obviously yeah. it's not thinking, but there's got to be some sort of a chemical response uh, that is, uh, you know, triggered by the abrasion and uh, then it lets one branch die and like, and the, the roots can grow and contract. And, and there, there's a lot of different things that happen within the life cycle of plants. There's um, so much heliotropism, right? I mean, like if, if, a, if a tree is out in the open, you know, it's got a good access to the sun, but you can easily see if a plant only has sun in certain areas, it grows oblong into that particular location uh, because that's where the access to light is. And so there's a lot of chemistry going on, even if there's not thinking involved in how how these things operate but yeah. um the uh, b- back to the story that the google earth's view uh that time lapse view uh, some of the footage goes all the way back to 1984 uh which i found wow. impressive right like i didn't expect them to have that much of a catalog and that's obviously not for everywhere in 1984 there was a limited number of satellite imagery devices uh in in space and uh and uh, who knows of that era, uh, you know, stuff is still classified from certain things. Uh, you know, right. if that, that's, that's the era of the Soviet Union. So I'm sure that, you know, certain, uh, there's blackout regions where that data is just never going to be available. But, uh, you know, you think about it, 
and this tool is moderately, maybe even marginally useful here because in certain areas, nothing's really happened. Um, but the fact that it exists now, and, and I played with it, I went around to a few different places, some of the ones that they had highlighted, highlighted. Uh, that would show some interesting changes and it worked. It was a bit slow and kind of cumbersome to figure out. It's a Gen 1 uh, addition to, to Google Earth right now. So I expect it to get better in time, not just with the usability, but with the new data. Every year, this tool is going to become more and more useful, better especially and better. when we are trying to visualize uh, global issues like climate change, like uh, uh, urban sprawl, deforestation of the Amazon and other places like that too, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that uh, can be visualized very easily, and the tool isn't for academics, tools for everybody. Anybody yeah. can grab this yeah. and use, uh, use, you know, photographic evidence of the world's change to whatever their point should be, whether it's rezoning a city or, you know, uh, changing forestry laws. So, you know, it'd be interesting yeah. to see what the, what city or urban, urban traffic patterns looked like during the pandemic in time-lapse, you know, oh, man, to see, to see how the, how the roads just kind of you know, all the traffic just goes away and then it comes back for spurts and then it goes away again as we have another shutdown. You know, it'd be really interesting to see that and fast forward to understand that. You know, one thing you were talking about with the heliotropism, the in I wonder if you know this, because I found this out not, relatively recently, like a couple of years ago with trees. I don't know. I have this fascination with trees, but with trees, they they have this thing. I think I'm uh, hopefully I'm not saying it wrong, but this it's basically akin to tree politics where they negotiate with each other to determine like, like a canopy of trees that were yeah, the branches so actually connect. They just come close, but they don't actually, yeah, uh, well that too, but, but also growth heights. So the trees that are, that are, they won't, the ones that are in the front, for example, won't grow high enough to shade the trees in the back. So they'll stay at a certain height so that they can get their son, but also allow Joe Bob behind them to get his son, as well. They won't, you know, I, of course, a tree could just grow up and shade everything, but they don't. They stop at a certain level so that everyone can get sun. That is so interesting to me. I'm like, humans could learn a lot from trees if we, if we behave the same way. I, I don't have the proper answer to that, but I do have a suggestion uh, you know, or a possible theory. Um, it doesn't have to do with what's above the ground, but rather below the ground. Um, and so if the taller tree already has a larger established root structure um, and its resources are, are, are claiming, uh, it, you know, are being claimed rather then the smaller tree has less in the direct vicinity to also claim if it's in close proximity to it uh there's just less real estate below the earth rather than above and i think that there might be some relation there although i don't know exactly what it is yeah, yeah Th so this week in learn. trees this week in uh, trees yeah <laughs> next week is this week in psilocybin and we'll, we'll learn about fungi and how they communicate <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, those magic mushrooms, especially the bioluminescent ones, which yes. uh, I have a kit in, in my closet here. I have no idea when I'm going to get to, I don't know if they're stale dated or whatnot, but uh, I bought a kit that lets me, uh, it's got uh, mushroom spores in it uh, and these little uh, plugs that I could plug into uh, a rotting log and have it grow 
uh, mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And you can buy these for edible mushrooms, sure, but I bought some bioluminescent mushrooms um, that are probably poisonous. Uh, yeah. So maybe when I had a small child around the house, it was not a good idea to have these. She's growing and mm-hmm. she's learning a little bit more now. She's nearly five. Still, I might wait a year um, or put yeah. it under lock and key. Uh, but I just thought it would be really cool to do time lapse of glowing mushrooms growing in their environment. Oh, that would um, be so cool. That would be so, so cool. many ideas. Do it. Do it. So many do ideas. It. Uh, I will. I just don't know when. There's just too much to do. Too many irons in the fire already uh, as it is. And and that brings me to uh, uh, to the end of the stories. But before we get into the picks of the week, we kind of teased it at the beginning, Frederick, but where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at thisweekinphoto.com. That's my website. And that community I mentioned, you can find at join.thisweekinphoto.com. Fantastic. We'll put the links to that in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com for everybody to check out. Uh, and now picks of the week. There's, I'll start because I really want to, uh, I want you to have the final word uh, with this, Frederick, because I know what your pick is. Um, but uh, I've had a bone to pick with all manufacturers who make things like extension tubes because they just haven't come to the table to make any for the L mount. And I shoot with Lumix cameras uh, on both full frame and micro four thirds. And I like macro photography. Extension tubes are available on just about every other mount on the planet. And they're not an expensive thing to manufacture. Um, but uh, there just isn't one yet for the L mount. And, and so I was kind of upset by that. But then I realized that uh, there is an alternative, a very expensive one, mind you, uh, Novoflex, uh, wonderful German uh, camera accessory manufacturer. Uh, they have an automatic bellows system for L-mount. And I finally got my hands on one of these things. And I tell you, um, you know, th- there's a sort of a, I-, I guess, a rule of diminishing returns when you spend a lot more for something you don't get ex- exponentially more for it. You get ex- exponentially less uh, for your dollars when you when you get into it. Um, but that being said, it is awesome. Um, these extension tubes, uh, or rather this, this bellows, which is a variable length extension tube, is the best engineered rail uh, and uh, just fine-tuned device like it's it's got to have like metal on metal so it's it's got to be well uh well manufactured and everything has to be tight um it is and it communicates flawlessly when i put my i've got the uh, lumix 24 to 105 millimeter macro lens on that uh and when it's fully uh condensed it's actually pretty thick it's about the same width as maybe a full set of regular extension tubes on there um, which I would normally use on a on a macro lens all of them together to get close but all I have to do is just spin this little dial here to extend those bellows and all of a sudden I have even more extent uh, extension than that oh, um, look at that. So this, I mean, at a certain point, your focus gets so close that it becomes internal to the lens and every lens is going to be different. You know, that full extension might be only terribly useful on a 200 or 300 millimeter lens. And macro photography with those lenses typically would be prohibited because you just need to have such a giant stack of extension tubes uh, to shift it into that range. But you can do that with this. And uh and then the price is $999 US. Ooh. So that is the most expensive, uh, you know, on-camera macro accessory that I currently own. Um, I, I think it's money well spent, but 
only if you need it. Uh, and right now, it's the only thing that offers extension uh, in the uh, in the L mount space. They do make it for other mounts too. And you know, if you're if you are looking for an automated bellow system, it rocks. Like it is just. I, I've got some. I've even got some of the old the um, the Canon auto bellows from the FD mount eras. They were made yep. in the 1970s, and and they are they're actually almost within within reach here. Um, so I, I've got like comparison materials that I could play with and, and, and utilize. Um, this is so flimsy and jerky by comparison. Um, and well, I mean, obviously this one cost me almost nothing in today's dollars because it's kind of throwaway, you know, garage sale kind of equipment. Um, but the auto bellows from Novoflex, that is my pick of the week. I'm glad I finally got my hands on one because now I've got um, some native L glass that I have been accumulating, uh, over the, uh, over the past year or two that I was hesitant for some lenses to replace my EF versions with L mount versions, just cause I didn't have the ability to put extension tubes on them. Mm-hmm. If anybody needs, uh, you know, an assortment of EF weird macro lenses that are willing to pay a good enough price for it to allow me to switch them all over to the L mount, I'm going to go ahead and do that now. I think, there I think the go. time has come. The time has come. You know, by the way, um, speaking of L-Mount, Baby just announced, I think it was either this past week or the week before, that they are now adding L-Mount to their lens lineup. So Fantastic. I do have a lens baby with the EF mount. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and so, so now, because I've got the, uh, the Sigma MC21 uh, uh, adapter, uh, for manual lenses, it's less of an issue. Um, because it's not, there's no mechanical connection. You don't need the auto part of the auto bellows in order for that to, to work properly. Um, but uh, still, to have everything fully compatible uh, with the native system without having to throw adapters here and there and you know clutter up the camera bag, it's much better to have whatever that native system is, whatever it is that you shoot. Um, I'm glad Lens Baby and a lot of other third party manufacturers, Venus Optics has released a number of L mount versions in the past uh, couple of months as well so great to see the love of the platform that i decided to support um including with companies like uh, like novaflex yep very cool so frederick your pick of the week uh might be multiple but they are all under the same umbrella correct yes actually it's one right so don you saw the you saw the apple event the spring loaded event that they did i think it was tuesday so the Lots of cool stuff, M1 processors in the new iMac and different colors. And Oh, come on. You, know, you got to mention a purple iPhone? Is that really newsworthy? <laughs> yeah, it's not the purple iPhone. Although I do like purple. I don't know why I've been liking purple lately. Uh, in fact, your challenge area within the Twit Pro is purple. <laughs> because oh, fantastic. Purple. Um, so, but the, the very interesting thing was you, you saw the AirTags announcement, right? Yeah. So, at, at their core, AirTags are these little quarter-sized devices that broadcast, I believe, RF and Bluetooth signals that other iPhones in the area can see anonymously, you know, through encrypted data. They know that this thing is there, and if you lose something that has a tag attached to it, you can find it with the Find My software that's already on every iOS device on the planet. That's, that's the premise. The reality is and I believe they've they've hinted at this in previous Macworlds or not Macworlds or, or presentations. They did not hint at it at this one for some reason. I think they're going to make a big deal of it at the upcoming WWDC. But the the next level deeper than just finding lost stuff is augmented reality and being able to tie 
virtual digital items to a physical thing. Uh, So think of it like this. So I could, so one of your snowflakes, you could make a Princess Leia, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope type hologram and attach that to one of these things. And when someone looks at it, they see it, right? And it's permanently attached to that thing. So wherever that thing is, it will pop up when someone looks at it. If it's, you could have one in your back pocket. So whenever someone looks at you, you display a message that says something. You know, maybe this could it's a political opinion or something. <laughs> well, sure. Uh, th- th- this could completely reinvent uh, um, geocaching. Yes. Uh, like people putting GPS coordinates out there, people to go and find a cache of whatever treasures have been left behind. Yep. Um, you could just hold up your phone and just walk around until you see some spinning icon uh, nearby um, that right. might have a message or a clue towards another one. And people yeah. could gamify this really easily. There's another level, though. There's another level. So that's kind of the surface. Of course, we're going to see that. You're going to see augmented VR stuff all over the planet in the coming years. Menus, everything, right? Um, But think about it from the standpoint of NFT and cryptocurrency. So now, Don Komarechka could create an original macro shot of something that's limited edition and tie them through NFT technology into one of these these uh these tags so now it's locked in that tag and it's nft so it's non-fungible so now you have a fungible non-fungible you have you have a (laughs) you have a token that is that you can actually sell someone and anyone who looks at it can see your snowflake but it's the only one on the planet but but anybody could load that same data onto another one. There's nobody stopping the reproduction of the physical item, right? That's true. Well, I don't know. That's that's software. That's the encryption piece. So if you if you decided I want to load this snowflake data onto this thing so that when people look at it, how that encryption happens and how you limit that. So you say that, yeah, you personally say, Yeah, I've destroyed all the files that went into making this, and this is on this little thing right here is the only place that this piece of art exists and it's 10 grand if you want it right done yeah (laughs) no i mean there's a definite possibility of having that sort of uniqueness but that same level of uniqueness could be a usb key with the only copy of something it could Um, it could but but i mean it's like we've already had that that never went anywhere although the ability to display it uh in this context i think would have additional merit especially it's the mesh network though it's that mesh network of the what however many billion iphones are out there that that blanket the earth and they all can see these things anonymously so they're there. Right? Now, so I, I was curious USB about key, this. Tech- yeah, you can, you can make an NFT, put it on a USB key and sell it. But if I walked up to you and you had a Frederick Van Johnson original cinemagraph loaded onto one of these AirTags and it's in your back pocket and you've allowed me to see this, I could look at you and see that piece of artwork. Or it could be in the house or wherever. Right. Uh, now... It, I, I can kind of see how small they are based on a, a set of keys and it's on a key ring. So yeah, it's, it's, it's like fairly small. Uh, it's a little thicker than that, uh, obviously. But um, yeah. one quick question, and I might have missed this uh, in the mm-hmm. tech. Um, in terms of like the, uh, the, the find my item uh, and the fact of it being last seen near a specific location, was that last seen by you or anonymously by some iPhone on the entire network? Like it's uh, like if somebody know. steals your backpack and runs off with it. Can you use this technology to track down stolen goods? 
Well, that's the point. Yes. You, yeah, you can. So it's it's going to daisy chain and talk to whatever phone that is that is in proximity that it can talk to. So I don't I don't know if it if it is out of range of all iPhone or iOS devices. Will it say, you know, I would assume, you know, knowing Apple, I would assume it does this, but it would say, hey, last seen getting on a plane in Budapest. Right. So, yeah. So well, I mean, the, the value that. for that is uh, everybody should buy one and put one in their camera bag just as a oh, security absolutely. measure to protect their gear. But but yeah. also that I, and, and I was just thinking, because I remember in the past uh, taking apart some older uh, DSLR cameras that had just been broken bodies and I was just taking apart for fun. There was enough space inside of some of them. And I'm sure it's not always the case now in, in newer bodies, but there was space inside of them to put extra stuff. Yeah. Uh, could you imagine disassembling a camera and hiding one of these inside uh, if you're using a big enough camera body and there was enough space inside uh, and it doesn't cause overheating issues or something? But You can uh, work out the battery issues, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, so, so just to think about that in terms of uh, having like mission critical equipment that really can't go missing and if it does it can be tracked yeah. uh and i'm sure if there was some you know government agency finding solutions to this in the past well they obviously found their ways around it but this is a yeah. much more consumer facing way uh for us to like even if you've got a um, uh, like a, a a grip like a you know a uh, one of the L brackets or something on your camera uh, that gives extra space externally. You could wedge one of these on the underside and, and cover it up and people would just take the camera, discard the bag because the bag might have a tracker on it. But uh, looky loo, there is one on the camera as well. Yeah. Um, I would, I would not to be all paranoid about security, security, but uh, to, to have an option to find something that's been stolen actually makes a lot of sense for me. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I would, I would imagine that these... I like to I like to think science fiction, right? I would imagine I would imagine these air tags are kind of a bridge step towards uh, licensing the technology for OEM manufacturers to include in their hardware devices. Kind of like the the works with program that Apple does, works with iPhone, yada yada yada, or now the works with HomeKit. So there are you know a bazillion third party manufacturers that have enabled HomeKit interoperability in their devices. Now I can just scan a device and plug it in and it just works. Why not have this kind of technology licensed to be in my camera or my high ticket item pilferable devices, like much like yeah. an iPhone? It should just be there. I shouldn't have to. I feel like the little the air tags are a stopgap to getting to that utopia of every device just it just has the tech in it. I, I think that we would see that happen if people started buying them for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and then the manufacturers of all those devices that are being protected by, by this third-party device are just going to license it. Um, you know, who is it? Uh, Kensington made the lock system uh, for locking down computer devices and stuff yeah, in exactly. classrooms and, and what have you. And now it's always called a Kensington lock um, mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. uh, I guess they patented the, the way it was designed and that company has made oodles of money on that patent and it's all called, it, it's all named after them. So yeah. um, who knows? I'll I would like one. to see this come this same way i will have I'll, I'll have multiple of these just just because i want them um but the the most important use case for me is to put one in my daughter's backpack <laughs> so yeah i want to know where she is at all times and and be able to track her you know privacy be damned if somebody if somebody grabs her i'm gonna know where to get her so. I'm on board for that too, and and they are going to be available next week. Uh, April 30th mm-hmm. is the availability at uh, $39 a piece. 
Yeah, uh, that's where yeah. they start. I think yeah. you can spend more if you want to make them fancy with all the leather accoutrements on the outside of them. But um, that is that is not a bad deal. Uh, you know, a, a four pack for one twenty nine, and obviously, if you can find a use for one, you could probably find a use for more than one. Um, yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pick some of these up, Frederick. Thank you very much for uh, reminding me after the uh, the presentations that this is it's got a lot of possibilities to keep the people I love and the gear I love. Uh, yeah. safe. Yeah, it should be interesting. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I have no inside information from Apple on if they're if they're doing this augmented reality stuff, but I'm literally sitting on their their uh, AR page right now. It's apple.com slash augmented dash reality where they're showing, you know, the different uses of, of AR and what you could do. And it just to me, it just makes perfect sense to be able to put something, a physical item and tie it or put a digital item and tie it to a physical thing that's portable that can be seen by everyone that has a certain number of, uh, you know, that has a certain kind of phone to be able to do and, that, and you know. I think that as soon as uh, Apple uh, gets this out the door and sees how people are using it, there will be new ideas. Um, yeah. And uh, it's going to be an iterative process where the next generation will have different functionality based on how people are using it that couldn't have been predicted uh, when they designed it and marketed and launched it. Yeah. So I see that there's a lot of potential for this to grow. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it would have taken uh, Apple... Uh, or, you know, really only Apple could do this because the Android market system is fractured amongst big manufacturers. And don't mm -hmm. get me wrong, Google and Samsung, uh, are, they're, they're massive players, but there's a lot of little players within there that might not have necessary support uh, to, to make it ubiquitously available to every user of, of a platform. Um, so thank you, Apple, uh, for doing what only you could do. Yeah. You know, one thing that just to throw in here before we break is I don't know if you saw this part of the keynote, but they were talking about the next revision of Apple TV and they showed the color or the screen color calibration feature that looks to maybe compete with folks like Spider and X-Rite, because basically oh, cool. how it works is you take your iPhone and place its screen on your television screen and it does with a what an X-Rite or Spider calibration puck will do. But for your Apple TV, the the premise is you get the best color possible out of your television viewing experience through your Apple TV. Just use your phone to calibrate. And I'm looking at that thinking, can you put that? <laughs> can I use that on my LG you know display in my office as well and everywhere? You know, so. I don't know. That seems really, that seems like another sleeper product. Especially for the, the average person that uh, doesn't have color calibration on the mind, but wouldn't mind better color and they don't have to spend anything more for it if they already have these compatible devices. Now, I'm assuming that it would be using the cameras on the phone in order to, to image the screen based on whatever. Uh, so that's basically a color emitter uh, yeah. at that point, which mm -hmm. isn't a problem uh, whatsoever. But there are products from X-Rite and Spider and probably others um, that uh, use uh, photo spectrometers that actually measure the wavelengths of light. And that ends up being more accurate, especially if you're uh, putting a device right against uh, a display depending on the type of display, uh, the, the the colors of light at the tiniest level, uh, when the device is right against it, might be actually 
fragmented mm-hmm. uh, that we see as a metamer when they kind of combine together at a greater distance and, and our, our eyes see those different wavelengths as, uh, as they coalesce into something. And that's not to get too much into the weeds about it, but um, there's many ways to both display color and to read color. Uh, and uh, this is one, and it can work actually quite well for a large majority of devices, not to get perfect results. I mean, if I was gonna be editing something uh, for critical color accuracy in printing, you'd want a dedicated device for that. Yeah, But if you just wanna, say you bought a cheap TV and you want it to get a little bit better, uh, well, now you can uh, mm-hmm. once that rolls out. So that's pretty And fun. you're tired of messing with those sliders to get brightness and black levels and all that. If I could just put my phone on the screen and it's, it's it, the, as good as it gets, great. I'm happy. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for those insights. Uh, and sure. thank you as always, Frederick, for the, the times that you've come on the show now and in the past. It's always great Absolutely. to have you on. And, uh, you know, and, and to everybody, just uh, as a reminder to, to check out the Twip Pro community, uh, I am participating there in, uh, I'll call it an experiment uh, at, at this stage because there's, there's a lot of unknowns and we're just kind of working through that. And uh, if you want to see how that experiment is unfolding, you are welcome to participate. Um, and that brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Thank you to everybody for listening. Um, you know, in some regions of the world, Frederick, where you are, it might be safer to go outside and, and actually take pictures and enjoy the world right now. But here in Ontario, things are pretty dire at the moment. So based on my location, my tagline is going to remain for the time being. It's time to stay in and shoot. Mm-hmm.